one Lego set by itself was cool. But it was when you combined sets that you could really do some exciting stuff. In fact, I remember, you know, getting together with some of my friends because, you know, different sets had different pieces and different colors. And, and so somebody might have like a Star Wars theme set and somebody might have a construction theme set. But you bring those together and all of a sudden, you know, you got Bob the Builder working on an X-Wing and it's just awesome. And and that idea, it was so great until you finished playing and it was time to deconstruct whatever you'd built and sort out what went where. Which got really difficult if all of the pieces, you know, if they've got different, same colors but different sets, well then it's going to get really complicated and you spend all this time looking at the bricks and the bigger pieces and looking at the characters and asking who goes where. Now we're going to look at a parable that Jesus tells that is an answer to that question in the scheme of eternity, who goes where? So with that in mind, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25. While you're doing that, I want to welcome everyone who is with us. If you're live at our North Richland Hills campus, thanks for joining us. Or maybe you're watching or listening online or maybe later on podcast. Thank you for spending some time with us today. We're, we've come to the end of a series called It's Like This, Parables in Matthew. And we've looked at these parables, these ingeniously simple word pictures with profound spiritual lessons. And, and so as, as we've come to the end of the series, let me say thank you to everyone who has written in or sent me an, an encouraging note or email or maybe on Facebook or Twitter you've engaged and said something or quoted a, something from this message or maybe you've asked a question afterwards, whether in person or online, thank you so much for participating and engaging with me through this series. And to our senior teaching minister, Rick Ashley, who's maybe is watching later or maybe live. Uh, Rick, thank you so much for your investment, for your coaching. Uh, we as a whole church... So appreciate you as not only a teacher of God's word, but as a leader who leads by example with his life. Can we all affirm that together about about Rick? I know I know lovey stuff is not his favorite. That's why I have to do it when he's not on campus. Uh, but but I, uh, I also want to echo his words about his series coming up called By Design. Um, this teaching, which I've heard kind of previews of, you are really going to want to make sure that you're here for this series that he's going to begin next week. And if you can't be here for other reasons, just make sure you keep up with it online because it will be such an important series for all of us to process and work through together. So with that in mind... We're going to look at a picture that Jesus paints in Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to start in verse 31. There's other parables that he tells and that he teaches in this chapter leading up, but we're going to get to one that I would say is kind of the, the culmination. And so Jesus begins in verse 31 saying, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, in this scene, Jesus is talking about what some people might call judgment day. It is a moment in which the son of man and if that language is confusing, Jesus is talking about himself. The, the Son of Man is also the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings. And so Jesus 
would sit on his throne, the heavenly host there, and all the nations are gathered before him. And then he uses this, this quick little parable language, this word picture. The people are separated like a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. Now, the disciples would have been very familiar with this language and with this imagery. There were shepherds and and sheep and goats were common inside of flocks in Jesus's time. And they would be herded together during the day. But a lot of scholars talk about the, the idea that that they needed to be separated at night because the goats needed to be corralled and herded differently because they need to be kept warmer at night, whereas the sheep could could handle the cold. But whatever the reason for the separation, the disciples would also understand that a shepherd, any good shepherd, has an intimate knowledge of his flock. And so as he goes among them, it's it's not quite as difficult or as complicated as a Lego sorting to be able to set a sheep this way and a goat that way. And Jesus talks about the nations being separated and cut up in this way that all the peoples are put on one side or the other. And once this has happened, the king makes statements. And so we move past the parable imagery to what Jesus gives us this picture of judgment. So listen, I'm going to read all the way from verse 34, all the way to verse 45. And admittedly, this is a longer reading than I would normally do. But as as I was looking at this passage, I was convicted. We need to hear every single word from Jesus on this. So once once they're split up on one side, the, the right and the left, like the sheep and the goats, then in verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So Jesus uses this imagery, the sheep and the goats, the blessed and the cursed on the right and the left. And even where I'm standing here in our auditorium, uh, I've got people on my right and I've got people on my left. So for half a second, just cutting, cutting through the balcony and down this aisle, we've got people on the right. You guys happen to be the sheep this weekend who are blessed and invited into the kingdom. Can I hear, can I hear some celebration for being invited into the kingdom? Yeah. 
Uh, meanwhile, from from here to the left, normally this would not be a bad seat. It just turned out that way this weekend. Uh, so so can I hear an awe for being among the goats? Yeah, exactly. Um, Jesus draws this line. Some on the right, some on the left, blessed and cursed. And the distinction he gives really bothers me. The first time that I read this and, I, and I'm processing it, it really bothers me. Like maybe it bothers some of you. Because some of you, we, we hear a passage like this in which Jesus relates what they did as a reason for their blessing or their cursing. And we think, wait a second, the Bible teaches very clearly that we cannot earn our salvation. There's nothing we could do. There's no human work of obedience or righteousness that would earn an invitation to the kingdom. So, so how can Jesus paint this picture? So let me give you a response. First and foremost, let's, let's agree that this is a sketch. This is, this is a brief glimpse of some aspect of judgment, not an exhaustive theological treatment on salvation or obedience and the rewards therein. On top of that, I don't actually think, having prayed about it and looked at this, I don't think that this text disagrees with anything else that's in Scripture. Knowing that this is Jesus who's bringing this truth to us, he's the one who announced this gospel, this line in the sand that relates to him, not to people's obedience. So I think we we have to trust and understand that in the broader view of Scripture, this is not in disagreement with other places that talk about salvation not being of works. We have to see this in context. But, But on top of that, some of you may remember that a few months ago, our senior teaching minister, Rick Ashley, he, he touched on this parable very briefly. And it's been several months, but there's something he said that bears repeating. The sheep, those blessed by the father and invited into the kingdom, have no concept of having earned the invitation from the king. Did you hear their response? After the king says all these great things that they did that, that are earning them the kingdom, supposedly, they respond, when did we do this? They don't have a mindset that they somehow worked to earn the invitation into the kingdom. Instead, I would argue, having been changed by the king, they lived in such a way that showed they were now marked by the kingdom. This is an important distinction. And, and, and you may have other questions about this text, but, but I, I want to blow past all those questions and get us to something that all of us can be on the same page with in regards to this text and what Jesus shows us. So here's your first big takeaway that's about us, and we'll have a later big takeaway that's about Jesus. First big takeaway, saved people serve people. It's just that simple. I mean, I know there's other questions in the text, but for Jesus, saved people serve people. Now, I'm not saying that because they serve, they are therefore saved. That's not the order. They are saved, and so they live a life of service. Do you notice what these blessed people did? They cared for the people who were on the fringe of society. They cared for what Jesus called the least of these, the ones who are lowest on the social spectrum and and, and least cared for, least thought about, most quickly forgotten. And they cared for these people. They served them. They helped to provide simple things, food, a drink of water, some clothing. These are not extravagant works. And yet these are humble acts of service that mark anyone who is part of God's kingdom. Which means being part 
of a local church, which is part of the bigger kingdom of God, means that we are to call we're called to live lives of service, which changes or should change how we think about what it means to be part of a Christian community. One of my friends, he, he told me about his wife being at the DMV and uh, and because you're never at the DMV for a short amount of time, she got to know the woman who was waiting next to her in line. And they started talking some and they talked about being 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 a mom and they, they talked about, uh, you know, just their neighborhoods. And they talked about also uh, my, my friend's wife. He started she started talking about being part of a church. And she mentioned the fact that at her church, she and her husband are part of a community group. And as soon as she used that phrase, community group, this woman she just met at the DMV, her eyes go wide and she says, wow, that's amazing that you have community groups, which the wife, my my buddy's wife is thinking, what do you know about community groups? But she, this woman at the DMV, she just says, she just keeps talking and she says, these community groups, they sound so great. So you're saying that there's groups of people from your church who get together, they form a group and then they go serve the community. When I when he told me this, I thought this was the most brilliant misunderstanding about community groups. What a great insight from someone who just heard the name and and gave this definition that often I don't apply. I know we've got community group season starting back up. And if you're not part of a group, I'd encourage you to try one out. But oftentimes my wife and I were part of a community group and I have always thought about it with this mindset of this is a place where I cultivate my community where I deepen and build relationships. And while they do serve that function, what would it be like if I was willing and and we were willing to think of our groups as building those relationships while we are a community for the community? That our community groups would be my community for the community. That we change our mindset about about our neighborhoods and about our schools and about our workplaces. And we look for opportunities where as a group we could show that saved people serve people. As a group, we could we could pay attention to those new neighbors who are in town and who, who are needing to be welcomed. Or maybe maybe that person down the street that you've driven by them and they've been working on that project outside in the heat for, for weeks. And finally, it's time for you to go down the street and help them out. Or to, to ambush them with your group and, and all pitch in and help out. What would it be like if we thought that way? But thinking that way, it can take us to places where we're kind of maybe a little bit uncomfortable. The text talks about going and visiting someone who's in, in prison, which may be intimidating. It talks about caring for those who are hungry, who are Thirsty, who are naked, who are sick, and that might involve us stepping into parts of town that we're less comfortable with or, or, or stepping into rooms that we're not sure about or stepping into situations where we're maybe a little bit more defensive. That defensive posture is easy to take. I heard a story about a family. They were it was the middle of the night and all of a sudden they heard this great crash. Husband and wife jolt up. And, and it sounded like somebody broke, broke a window or something. And they think somebody's trying to break in the house. And so very carefully, you know, they, 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 they head downstairs. And, and then all of a sudden they, they realize it was just a, it was a pet who had knocked something over. And, and so they go back to sleep. They get up in the morning. They talk about this over breakfast with their 17-year-old son who was just down the hall from them when it happened. And they're asking him, how did you not wake up? I mean, classic teenager to somehow sleep through this huge crash. And the 17-year-old boy said... No, I heard it. I heard this crash. Then I heard footsteps. I didn't know what it was. So I grabbed my pocket knife and I just hid in the corner. 
And the parents are like, what? You mean you thought somebody had broken in and you didn't come to check on us? Like you didn't care. Thanks a lot, son. Really appreciate that. But I can picture that that 17 year old boy just sitting, waiting, wondering. A lot of us, we've we've heard the crash. We've seen the headlines and the videos of shootings, citizens, police officers. We've seen and heard the crash in the political sphere with the the growing division and and the the language and back and forth that's taking place and is only going to ramp up over the next few months. We've heard the crash in society at large and seen what so many of us feel is a decline in in the the honoring in public public settings of anything from the Bible or dealing with the name of Jesus. And when we hear the crash, there's so many of us who want to react like that 17-year-old boy. And we hunker down and we try and make the church this, this safe place where we bar the door and we build the barriers and, and we, try and, we try and do this so that we can, it's a safe place for us. But the challenge is, while the church should be a safe place, it is not a safe place where we keep people out. It is a safe place to invite people into. Because saved people serve people. And if we're truly saved, then we're not afraid to go. Speaking of Go, how many of you are familiar with Pokemon Go? How's that for a transition? Yeah. Okay. We, so, so some of you, how many of you have heard of this? Hands up. Hands up. Okay. We got quite a few that have heard of it. All right. Brave hands. How many of you have played Pokemon Go? All right. We got some, we got some brave hands in the room. I personally have not played it, but it came out when I was hanging out with my brothers who are, who are gamers. And so they had downloaded it and they were playing. And some of you were going like, what is Pokemon Go? Here's the thing. Pokemon, it, it, it's, it's this game that has now been turned into an app. And so you can download it on your phone and then you can, you can go to real places and, and through the app you can catch imaginary creatures. Uh, they're, they're called Pokemon. So, so that's as detailed as I'm going to get with it. But basically, just, just so you understand, it's just a made up game that people do to pass the time. So it's not too different than like fantasy football. So uh, anyway... Yeah, it's okay. If you want to write me, that's fine. But just so you know, fantasy is in the name of your game. So, FYI. Anyway. So here's what's funny. Pokemon Go has has blown up in just a few weeks. There are now some 26 million users who are using it in such a short amount of time. And over 20 million of them are in the United States alone. And I've seen people who've been who've who've been playing. They walk around even at night. I was heading home and all of a sudden I saw people walking with like their flashlights and with their phones. And I'm like, what are they doing? Uh, Somebody pulled up right next to me at the stoplight and yelled across the street at these people. They roll down the window. They go, hey, what did you catch? Because they were driving around trying to catch stuff. Now, what's funny is they've actually like like. Pokemon, the app, it, Pokemon Go, it uses the landmarks and the maps as a means of navigating. And so a buddy of mine, he's a pastor at a church across town. And no joke, midweek, early in the morning, there are two teenagers standing outside their church, like with their phones. And they're just tapping away. And the staff wasn't sure what was going on. So they go and they open the door. And they're like, hey, can we, can we help you guys? You guys okay? And they're like, oh, no, it's fine. You guys are a pokey stop. We're just filling up. <laughs> And so they fill up supplies in the game and then they leave. And he told me this. I'm like, what? This is crazy. And then I found out, no joke, 
I saw somebody post this. Did you know that at the NRH campus, the church sign is a pokey stop? I know, seriously. Some of you who raised your hands, you're like, oh, I didn't know that. And after service, you're going to like head out there and be like, mm. Now, it's funny, but my buddy, he asked afterwards, he was thinking, man, I hope, I hope our church is more than a pokey stop to people. Like, that's a pretty sad legacy to leave, right? But what, what is a challenge for us is that when we hunker down and when we become self-serving, then we miss out on what it means to really impact our community and leave a legacy. Now, I love being a part of the church that has chosen in so many ways to be a serving church and to be a generous church to the least of these. Some of you were here recently when we handed out envelopes to partner organizations for Renew. And it was a great celebration of all this money that was being given to these organizations that do serve and care for and clothe and provide for the least of these. But notice that in this passage, Jesus does not mention a single act of service that involved a wallet. And that's a gut check for me, because honestly, sometimes it's easier to give money than it is to give my time. And sometimes it's easier to fund the organization than to go and volunteer for it. But Jesus talks about acts of service that require our skin in the game. Not merely financially, but also with our time and our energy, with our presence. Because, and here's how I'd put it, acts of mercy show that mercy is active in us. And how we love others, it it reveals God's love at work in us. And the presence of that love, of God's love marked on our life, it's a huge It's a huge reason for this line in the sand. And it has big implications because I didn't finish this passage. There's one verse that I left off. In verse 46, after describing the people on the right, the people on the left, the blessing and the curse, says that then, Jesus finishes, then they who are cursed will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The word picture the sheep and the goats, it couldn't be simpler, but the stakes couldn't be higher. Hear me really clearly. Hell is real. And so is heaven. And this is Jesus, the Son of God, giving us a clear indication that there will be a time someday when there are those who are invited into an eternal reward one for them by Jesus, and there will be others who will be eternally rejected, not just for a time, but for all time. And if we really believe that, this should motivate us in our life of service in a deeper, truer way that we would want to serve so that eventually we could share. And not just share food or water or clothing or our own friendship, but to share our faith. Because we want people to know that Jesus, well, here's how I'd put it. Judgment and mercy only happen through Jesus. 
Now, that, that may bother you, but this is the second big takeaway, and it's about Jesus. Judgment and mercy only happen through Jesus. In this scene, Jesus is pictured as the king, the son of man on his glorious throne, come in his glory with the host of heaven to administer not only mercy, but also judgment. Now, I have a feeling some of you who, who maybe are, are, are pretty well versed in the Gospels are going to John 3, and you're thinking, wait a second, Jesus doesn't judge people. In John 3, he said, I I did not come into the world to judge. And you're right. In his first coming, Jesus did not come to judge. But in John chapter 12, it clearly states that Jesus has been given the authority to judge. Not on his first coming, but here in Matthew 25, we see the second coming of Christ. And before all the nations, Jesus not only distributes mercy, but he distributes judgment. We cannot differentiate these two. They happen together in Matthew 25. And it's 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 easy for us to buy into a bubblegum kind of picture of Jesus in which he is all mercy, all acceptance, all love, all forgiveness. And while he does encompass all of those things, he is also a righteous judge. He is also a ruling king and he has all authority to cast judgment. And notice, if, if, if we buy into this idea that Jesus is all acceptance, then we have missed some of these parables we've looked at this month. <laughs> we, we started with a group of, of four different types of soil. And guess what? Three of them were bad, and one of them was called the good soil. There's your line in the sand. We then we, we looked at, at workers in a vineyard, and, and, and one, the, one group was entitled, and they had to be humbled, and another group was humbled, and they were, they were generously treated with mercy after only working one hour. They got a full day's wage. There's your line in the sand. The first will be last, the last will be first. Then we looked at two sons who have a request from the father, and one of them is obedient, and one of them is disobedient. There's your line in the sand. There's your division. And now we come to the sheep and the goats, the blessed and the cursed. There's your line in the sand. There's your division. Jesus is the one who is perfect in judgment and perfect in mercy. And he has all the authority to be and draw that line in the sand and say, if you do not call on me, if you have not chosen Jesus as as your savior, if you have not believed in him and, and have received his grace, if you don't have the mark of the kingdom on your life, then you will be rejected. And I'm not trying to play scare tactics, but Jesus is really clear about this. And he's also clear about the fact that we have no idea the day or the hour when this will take place. Not as a sketch in a parable, but for real. I can't guarantee you the next hour. I can't guarantee you the next year. I can't guarantee you the next decade, whatever you've planned out for your life, whatever your hopes or dreams. I can guarantee none of it to you. All I can guarantee you is that at some point Jesus will return. And on a throne, he will divvy up the nations. And it will be based on your connection to him. Because the rest of scripture attributes, we, we can't earn our salvation. But something has been revealed to us through these parables about the kingdom of God. And in fact, when Jesus is teaching in these parables, he's fulfilling a prophecy. We started the series in Matthew chapter 13. And in that chapter, Matthew, he, he, he says, so was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. 
I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And so in these simple little word pictures, we've seen things revealed that have been hidden since the creation of the world. And that phrase should be familiar to you because I just read it in Matthew chapter 25. When the king says to the blessed, he says, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So in these parables, we have the kingdom of God being revealed, which has been hidden. But it's not only the kingdom that has been hidden. It is also the king of that kingdom, Jesus. In 1 Peter 1.20, we see this phrase again. Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake and even in the book of revelation when they talk about jesus one of the references is they call him the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world so not only is the kingdom being revealed to us but also the king and also the fact that that king would be willing to not only be the judge but to accept accept the punishment of the judge He came and he lived a perfect life. And he had no reason to be cursed or rejected. He had every reason to be accepted and blessed. And instead, he faced a cross and he faced persecution and he faced scorn and he faced loneliness and hopelessness and separation from God on that cross. And so when he judges, he is not one who has not already faced that judgment. But not only that, because of his perfect life, When he rewards those who do not deserve it and he invites them in and calls them blessed. He attributes his perfect life to their imperfect one. This is what is being revealed to us through these parables that there is a kingdom and it has already started. But someday, like this picture in Matthew 25, it will be fully consummated. And there is a king. And he has already been revealed in these last times for your sake, that you might fall on your face and say, God, I'm not worthy, but I claim Jesus as Savior and Lord of my life, his body and blood broken and poured out for me to pay for my sins and and his resurrection to win for me a new life, that I can walk in a new life today and that that could affect every day until eternity. This is what's been revealed. And so if you are in Christ... A gut check question for all of us. Do acts of compassion mark your life? And if not, it's time to repent and take the posture of your Savior who came not to be served, but to serve. Because save people, serve people. And if you are not in Christ and you're listening to my words, I pray that you would yield to the Spirit wanting to draw you God inviting you and saying, look, you can never earn your way. You cannot do enough. You can't be good enough to ever get into the kingdom. But Jesus has already done enough and he's been enough and he is enough for you. If you're willing to accept him as your savior, this is the promise of scripture. And this is the great, terrible, joyful, incredible truth from Matthew 25 that all of us need. Let me pray over you. God, I thank you so much for the picture that you've painted through these parables, for the truths you have revealed. And even though this is a hard truth, these are words from Jesus. And so help us to trust that they are words that want to lead us to life. 
And let us surrender to you as humble servants in your kingdom to care for the least of these, but also as hopeless sinners in need of Jesus because he alone administers judgment and mercy ultimately. And God, we pray for mercy. I pray for mercy for everyone hearing my voice and that all would claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. Allow him to change their life today, but also into eternity. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.